I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. This week, Mary Kay Wilmers is in conversation with Andrew O'Hagan. One of the founding editors of the LRB in 1979 and its sole editor for 30 years, Mary Kay Wilmers is now the paper's consulting editor. Her pieces were recently collected as Human Relations and Other Difficulties. Andrew O'Hagan, the LRB's editor-at-large, is now probably best known as the author of several prize-winning novels, but he was an unpublished assistant editor at the LRB when, in 1993, Mary Kay asked him to write a diary about the James Bulger case, which catapulted him to instant fame or notoriety. He has written about Mary Kay in the latest issue of the paper, and before we get to their discussion, we'll hear him reading a bit from his piece about her. The other day, I was talking to a man who was once head of an Oxford college. He recalled an occasion in the late 1950s when he was a student himself, and Kingsley Amos had come to address his college's literary society. When Amos eventually asked for questions, a young woman said something that came as a surprise. Can you give us your sex life in ancient Rome face? she asked. Jim Dixon, the hero of Lucky Jim, is keen on making faces, and is stumped at the end of the book because he is more or less happy, and so, as a kind of token, he made his sex life in ancient Rome face. Amos, suddenly confused, didn't quite know what to say, and the audience laughed. The young woman was Mary Kay Wilmers. After working at Faber and Faber, The Listener and the TLS, she became one of the founders of this paper in 1979 and has just retired after more than 30 years as its editor. I wanted to begin with one of her jokes, an early one, because her gift for amusement has always been there, a crucial element in a career of giving life to arguments. You edited the school magazine. What was your editorial policy, as it were? I can remember that I told stories of anecdotes about theatre reviews and concerts and the idea that I wrote about concerts is wonderfully incongruous, <laughs> but I did. So you went to work at Faber and Faber straight out of college, pretty much. Uh, was there a house style there? Not really, but, you know, it, it, it was a place that had to be respected. You didn't think, oh, Faber and Faber, that's some crap outfit. Um, it, it's something that that you had to think well of because because of T.S. Eliot, if no if for no other reason, Eliot worked at, at favour. 
Was it intimidating for that reason? Yes, it was a bit. And then he he caught me. He caught me looking out of the window and saying to the people in the room, the room where I worked and they were working, um, and I said with my back to, to my colleagues, oh, look at all those lucky people in Brussels Square doing bugger all. And... Uh, <laughs> There was a silence. Nobody said anything. And I turned round and there was Elliot in the doorway looking as if he, as I saw it, looking as if he wanted to kill me. And also there was an element, certainly in my thinking, of of Rachel Nehrabinovitz tears at the grapes with murderous claws. <laughs> That's not good. Did you have a sense then that the books at Faber were well edited? So I, I didn't, I wasn't full of contempt for them, although contempt came to me fairly easily. No. It's more about the editing, though. I mean, Charles Monteith, for example, was he a good editor? Well, the truth of the matter is that I wouldn't have had that thought. But, I mean, there were, there were things that were extraordinary, like, that, for instance, I edited a book about flower decoration in churches, I know and knew then nothing about flower decoration in churches. It was the same with other aspects. I edited a book about underwater diving or not diving, because I would just scuba diving. Something like that. I mean, you did it because you were asked to do it, and it was a challenge, and it was amusing as a challenge. It must have been quite nice improving sentences on those subjects. I mean, not that one had to know anything. One presumably had to know something about sentences or have an in- instinct for them. An instinct for sentences, yes. One didn't have to know anything about uh, swimming underwater, but and everyone was... I mean, I wasn't the only person amused at the thought that this was what I was doing. Other people were too. I think my parents were as well. But it that was part of what was nice about Faber. It wasn't so toffee-nosed or... Although it had all those poets. It had all those poets. I didn't have too much to do with all those poets. I was, you know, wary of... Stepping out of line on the well, other the history hand. of the history of Faber, on the other hand, the written history gives you um, credit for pushing for Seamus Heaney. Yes, well, I did. I mean, the the atmosphere was was friendly, um, and there was quite a lot of teasing, and that always helps me anyway. <laughs> I quite like being teased, and I like teasing people. Um, so that was all okay by me, and they were friendly. There, there was a a rumor that, not a rumor, but they said that they liked practical jokes. For instance, Charles Monteith, for instance, had athlete's foot. Oh yes, and so his colleague Morley Kennelly, who was big practical joker and quite liked to share his jokes with underlings as it were so Monteith had athlete's foot he was in the London clinic with athlete's foot 
well, how bizarre is that? And, <laughs> and it, it was his colleague, Morley Kennelly, who pointed that pointed out, out and yes. shared the joke with us, yeah. underlings. I, I don't know how Elliot felt about it. In 1988, Mary Kay Wilmers gave a talk at the Turin Book Fair, and a version of it was published as a diary in the LRB. In December 1947, Susan Sontag was invited to have tea with Thomas Mann. She was 14, a high-minded schoolgirl, full of literature and the seriousness of life. She had one friend, and this boy, her disciple, had written to Thomas Mann, who was then living in California, telling him that they had been reading his books and admired them above all others. The young Miss Sontag was shocked that a great writer should be disturbed by two schoolchildren, and shocked again when the great writer acknowledged their letters with an invitation to tea. It seemed grotesque, she said, that man should waste his time meeting her. And besides, she asked, why would she want to meet him when she already had his books? The visit took place the following Sunday, and her disappointment was so painful but for 40 years she didn't mention it to anyone. It wasn't that she and her friend made fools of themselves or that man himself gave them a hard time. He wasn't forbidding or scornful or difficult to understand, all of which she had expected. On the contrary, what he said was too easy, banal, pompous and boring. I wouldn't have minded, she says now, if he had talked like a book. I wanted him to talk like a book, what I was obscurely starting to mind was the talk like a book review. I know what Susan Sontag means, but I wouldn't have felt that I was in the wrong job if she had said that man talked like a bad book review. There obviously is a considerable gap on the scale of human achievement between a good book and a good book review, a gap which is indicated by the fact that while there have been many great books, there are few great book reviews. In the ordinary course of things, the best one can hope for is that some will prove memorable over the lifetime of an editor or his magazine. On the other hand, it isn't at all self-evident, not to me at least, that a bad or mediocre book is superior to an effective or interesting book review simply on the grounds that a book is a book and the authors of books are nearer to God than the authors of reviews. No one would deny that reviews are by definition parasitic, as well as being quicker and easier to write, but a review can still be more accomplished and more thoughtful than the book on whose existence it depends, which is something worth bearing in mind when academics wrinkle their noses and cry journalism. So you were famously poached by Carl Miller from Faber to come and work at The Listener, under his editorship, you, you later said that it was an exciting place to work, the listener. Why? Well, it was partly because it was a real paper. It had a life beyond me, as it were, and also because the editor was quite a, a force. flammable force. <laughs> yes. And that was exciting. I mean, you quite liked the idea of being in a sort of faster environment with people yeah. who are a bit temperamental. Yes. I mean, that is journalism in a way, isn't it? Probably is, yes. Um, do you think bad, bad temperedness has something to do with good journalism? 
I have certainly sometimes thought it, whether that's the case or not. Who knows? But yes. And it moves quickly. And the idea of coming up with arguments and bearing witness and, um, as it were, taking part in a busier world must have seemed quite sort of intoxicating after the quietness of Faber. It, it was. I mean, Faber wasn't all that quiet because it was such a august place, what with Elliot and then Heaney and, and others. But, but it had its history, which meant a lot to it. Now, I want to ask you about headings, uh, perhaps reflecting what you think matters about titles. Well, I think I think what matters is is simply that one it it is an opportunity to to do something to make a contribution of one's own to a piece, and one should try and do it without drowning the piece or with one's own cleverness, as it were. That's not one shouldn't do that quite, but quite enjoy it. I mean, I can tell which of my colleagues now or my recent colleagues edited a piece because I can tell whose heading it's got. Well, I mean, a, who, would have made, who would have put that kind of heading on it? There's a tendency now to pluck a phrase yes. from the piece. Yes, I think there always was, probably. Alan Bennett, a friend of hers since Oxford, gives an account of a posh dinner she once attended with her then-fiancé, Tim Binion. A flunky at the door asked for their names so that he could announce them. Paralysed with shyness, Bennett writes, Mary Kay told him it didn't matter and may even have said that she didn't matter. Tiresomely, this gilded fly persisted, still wanting her name. Oh, skip it, she snapped, whereupon the flunky announced, Mr. Timothy Binion and Miss Skippet. The wish to be noticed and not noticed, and noticed as being unnoticed, would remain with her, and it was fundamental to her talent as an editor. She was present and not present in every text published under her editorship. She was in her office, surrounded by her colleagues, creating a democracy of sorts, but also a sovereignty. Yet her claim to the throne lay not in any divine right to rule, but in the fact that she was the sharpest editor of her generation, and the funniest. However hard, high-pressured, or controversial, her work never precluded jokes. Such and such a man was on a fault-finding mission. Marriages end, she said to Michael Neve, but divorces never do, which Neve said was as wildian as it gets. The LRB became known for its humour, I think, uh, under your sole editorship, especially. Well, Carl was quite funny, too. Yeah, I was just about to say, can you identify the sources of that humour? Um, Carl Miller, Beyond the Fringe, The Old New Yorker? Um, certainly Beyond the Fringe. I mean, a lot of my way of thinking about things comes from Alan Bennett, who I was at college with, though younger. She hastens to add. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of it, a lot of my way of putting things comes from Alan, as well as 
other people who were friends of his, like Jonathan Miller. I mean, it was all one group. There's a wonderful moment where you and Alan Bennett were on holiday and you were going off to the bakery, I think, and you asked uh, Alan Bennett and others if they would like anything. And he said he'd have a croissant or an analogous patisserie. And you found that incredibly funny, but not only funny. Oh, analogous patisseries. No, that was that was a, a really important moment in my life. And I don't think anyone to whom I've tried to explain that has really understood. But I'd lived in lots of different countries, none of them particularly congenial. And my mother's English wasn't very good in any case. She was Polish, Russian, whichever you want to call it. But well, anyway, which? Or both? Both. The point about it is that it was a way of bringing my previous life into the same world as my current life. I felt that Alan making that joke was... As it, as it were, bringing me into the same world as he lived in. And that was important. It's fascinating that you, that bridge, if you like, should be a comical use of words. Yeah, well, that's what he did, and that's what I certainly aspired to. As Alan puts it, you gave him to feel that he might have a future as a writer for the LRB. <laughs> or, uh, uh, the, the comedy... And the cleverness were fully responded to by you. Yes, because because it made me recognisable. It, it brought me into the same world as as he was in. I don't know. Does that not make sense? Well, we only have the one half of it. One understands Alan's funniness and your wish to be part of that. What we need to hear is what is the world it bridges back to, the world of your multilingualism, your parents' sense of humour, what does it bridge back to? Um, I've never heard bridging back as an expression. I like it, though. Um, Well, it brings my parents and me into a recognisable world that I would have seen analogous patisseries somewhere and thought it funny but I wouldn't have said anything because I wouldn't imagine that anyone else would. But Alan saying it just brought the world together. Yeah. And made put me somewhere recognizable because otherwise I felt that I was adrift. Yeah. I was nowhere. And caring about language that way and having those instincts and the idea that that kind of thing could be found funny would have, yeah. would have made you feel on your own beforehand. Yes, I imagine. I mean, I, it really was an essential thing that Alan didn't, Alan thought I was being ridiculous. In that sense, it didn't bring me into the world, but it did to me. Well, it makes sense. I mean, people commonly describe that experience as it spoke to you. Yeah. And he unlocked or gave permission to a part of you that was already there. Yes. What about Carl Miller and humour? Obviously. Well, uh, he was funny too. Yes, he was. I mean. But he was scary. 
what was the nature of his humour as you would see? I mean, I have my own sense of it. I worked with him later, at a much more terminal part of his career, I suppose. But he was funny even then. Yes, he, he definitely was. But it was certainly to me tinged with terror. You didn't, you couldn't be sure that he was going to, that it was a joke, that it was going to be a joke for me and for him. I wouldn't want to lose that sense, though, that given that we've just been talking about analogous patisserie, that a lot of Carl's funniness was to do with precision of language, too. Yes, yes. He would say things that were so unbelievably precise and apropos that they almost strained believability or something. Yeah, no, he 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 was, in a sense, just as funny as Alan. And also, it was a wider field that he had. But I'll look up some things. A hundred years ago, when novel writing was a flourishing concern, the most brutal things were said about novelists and their work. It is poor with the poverty, not of momentary embarrassment, but of permanent exhaustion, Henry James said of our mutual friend. It is inconceivable that a reviewer now would dare to say anything like that about any novel that is published. Both unreadability and mere readability are taken as signs of unusual talent, and if you look at the reviews published in the national press, you will find each week a fulsome string of adjectives, rich, mysterious and energetic, exact, piquant and comical, applied to novels which are at best mediocre by reviewers with soft hearts and a desire to see themselves quoted on the jacket of the author's next book. A literary editor alert to the danger of one novel's review sounding very like another, and none of them truthful or even plausible, may resent the fact that he has been given responsibility for keeping the novel alive. It can sometimes seem that in Britain today, novel reviewing is the last bit of the welfare state that is still in business. It's not always easy to define an editor's style, but Mary Kay definitely has one. It relies on an enduring respect for the possibilities of ambivalence. Most writers believe too much in what they believe, she once told me, as well as what John Lanchester once identified as a Russian horror of clarity. It's not that she doesn't like clear prose, it's just that she prefers it when writers don't use that prose to know, in advance of knowing, what they think about everything, or to preach to the readers, or to make a show of their own honour. Before mansplaining was a thing, it was a thing to her, and she has cut enough platitudes from pieces these forty years or more to fill the offices of the Royal Society of Literature. What in your eyes makes a good LRB piece? A piece that is clear, comes from somewhere you hadn't expected to hear from, and yeah, tells you something you didn't know or hadn't thought of. Is there a sense in which, even when people are writing about very serious subjects, a very experienced LRB writer or a much-used LRB writer is one who always finds a kind of comic tone somewhere? Probably not necessarily, but it, it certainly helps. And 
it it's a pity not to not to have recourse to it if that's the word I'm looking for and is there is there a way of writing for the LRB that isn't typical of say some of your rivals well I don't like anything heightened or sentimental or I mean you asked at one point whether there was a list of forbidden expressions mm-hmm. and in a sense there is but it, it's not stated I mean they're not listed uh, you know it's not don't ever say it's a very moving book but moving is a, is a word that I would keep out Touching, moving, poignant, all those things that people like to put on the back of novels. Yes, know. all those things. <laughs> there are also other words I never really, still to this day, I don't quite understand why you hate them so much, like amidst. Words like that tended to be exterminated. <laughs> well, amid is perfectly fine. Yeah. You don't need amid. Or you'd amidst. probably just change the whole thing to in the middle of. No, I just changed amidst to amid. Simple, (laughs) shorter. Some people are orderly to the point of disorder, obsessive compulsively, and other people are disorderly in a productive way. Mary Kay is in the latter class. Good at appointments, hair, board meetings, eye drops, but not so hot on deadlines or at keeping her desk tidy. I once turned up at her house with a very long piece I'd been working on for months. For some reason, I couldn't get the page numbering to work, so when she dropped the manuscript on the floor, I nearly had a heart attack. She simply laughed and said she'd work it out later. I knew then that we would never be married. Mary Kay can endure any amount of doubt, and part of the happiness of getting it down right, as William Maxwell put it, may have lain for her in the mystery of not knowing exactly how she would do it. The spirit of Miss Skippet is alive in those moments, a certain coolness in the face of the unknowable. She taught a generation of us that the job was to have a point of view. Vagueness wasn't a useful quality, and grand declarations are not the same as good writing. Do you think the LRB has changed? over the three decades or so you've been its sole editor? Well, I've been its sole editor, but my colleagues have a lot to to say for themselves. Um, They're obviously no less intelligent than I am, and in several cases no less amusing than I'm sometimes thought to be. Yeah, but let's not go down the rabbit hole of what your colleagues are like. This is your occasion, and I want to know how you have impacted on the paper that you helped establish. I mean, over these years, many readers have joined uh, the regular reading of the paper. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how that, why that is. Well, it it changes people. But I'm only going to say platitudes because I can't think of anything else to, to say to that. Publish no bad pieces, which is not a very broad category, um, or is a very broad category. I mean, it was very much a thing of 
we'd look through an, an issue when, when it had gone to press and say, well, there are no bad pieces here. That was Carl's criterion. Well, he would have denied it, but it was. You can read Andrew O'Hagan's piece on Mary Kay Wilmers in the current issue of the LRB and Mary Kay's diary on putting in the commas in the online archive. You can also listen to both of them reading their pieces on the article pages on our website. Links below this podcast.